Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Megafire. It's a new term in the climate change lexicon. These are wildfires burning at a high intensity, which cover more than 100,000 acres each. And we are seeing more and more of them. Today, we're exploring what is causing these megafires, the damage they are unleashing on life, property, and natural ecosystems, and how forest management techniques can provide solutions to this increasingly devastating problem. Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Claire Schoen. The American West is on fire. Of the 20 largest wildfires in California history, 15 happened since the year 2000. And damage from Western wildfires in 2017 alone cost $18 billion. The higher temperatures and lower humidity brought on by climate change are whipping up hotter and bigger wildfires. What it does, it just sucks out moisture out of fuel. So if you actually make fuel drier, you're just going to be able to burn it easier and have higher intensity, more flame lengths. That's Scott Stevens. He's a professor of fire science at the University of California, Berkeley. He's an expert on wildfires and has written about managing fire and forest in a changing climate. Stevens talked to our host, Greg Dalton, at a recent Climate One event. Lizzie Johnson was part of that conversation as well. She covers wildfires as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle and understands the toll that these fires are taking. The fires are coming into more developed areas like Santa Rosa. These are people that never thought that their home would burn down. And now they're getting evacuated in the middle of the night with no warning. They're terrified. They're traumatized. Greg's third guest on this panel is Rich Gordon, who represents the timber industry as president of the California Forestry Association. Gordon points out the contradiction that past policies of fighting every blaze has actually added to the problem. We have too much fuel. Our forests are too dense. We have uh, allowed them to overgrow because we have aggressively fought fire and done fire suppression. A thinner forest is a healthier forest. Before getting into the conversation, Greg played a clip for his guests from a survivor of the Tubbs Fire, north of San Francisco in 2017, that killed more than 20 people and destroyed nearly 3,000 homes. 
Catelyn Tucker's home was one of them. She described what it was like to grab her kids and run for their lives in the middle of the night. There was no warning. The power had gone off. Our fan had stopped working. It was warm in our bedroom. I thought that was odd, but I knew it was windy and went back to sleep. And I woke up the next time around 2.30, and my husband had heard something outside, and it was a policeman driving up our road yelling, you need to get out of your houses, a fire is coming. I have two kids. My daughter is 11, my son is nine, so my heart was pounding, and as we put them in the car, it was almost like snow. The ash was so thick already, the smoke was so thick already. I think I was in shock about the whole thing. When you don't have any warning that there could be a fire and then you're evacuated and you're worried about losing your home, it's just so surreal. I mean, I've obviously heard of people losing their homes in fire. I remember the fire up in Lake County a couple years before. The fire is now part of my story and I definitely still have trauma. You know, we are rebuilding in the same place and that gives me some anxiety. People keep saying things like, isn't it crazy this has happened? Like so unusual and I can't believe this is happening. And now I feel like because of the choices we're making in terms of our climate. I just feel like, stop saying it's crazy. This is so atypical. Like, this is the new norm. I think the new norm is going to be one thing after another. And that's what's really scary to me is that I know how hard it is to lose a home and have your entire life disrupted because of that. That was Catlin Tucker. She's currently living in the town of Sonoma while her family rebuilds their home in Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco. Lizzie Johnson, let's hear about another victim, Ed Bledsoe, 76-year-old man. Tell us his story. Yeah, so Ed Bledsoe lives up near Reading with his wife and their two great-grandchildren. And during the car fire, It swept in really suddenly. He had just gone down the street to pick up a check from his doctor. And, you know, while he was gone for those 15 minutes, his wife and those two little kids, they were four and five years old. They both burned in their home. And it shocked a lot of people just because it came out of nowhere. And they were two little kids. And they were some of the first victims of that fire tornado. And Scott Stevens, one reason that Ed Bledsoe didn't take those little kids with him that day was 113 degrees. So tell us how the high temperatures and the low humidity is kind of amplifying these fires we've seen recently in the West. Yeah, we have temperature like that and humidity. What it does, it just sucks out moisture out of fuel. So dead fuel is certainly going to get drier, and we know that's happening already just because of climate change and warming. And even the green fuels can have impacts from drought. So if you actually make fuel drier, you're just going to be able to burn it easier and have higher intensity, more flame lengths. So climate is making it drier, hotter, you know, amplifying these fires. Set the stage for us, Scott Stevens, in terms of the records that we're seeing. Are there really more fires or is it just our perception? Is it just because they're hitting urban areas? There's no doubt fire season is getting longer because of climate change, more variation, precipitation. We can have fires on the ground longer. That's absolutely true. 
And we're seeing fires impact people. So when fires impact people and communities and kill people, as we just heard, that, I think, elevates the whole discussion that happens around fire. And I think that's what happens with the conversation. And so why are fires coming to people now more than in the past? What is it about the last couple of years that suddenly I've been covering climate for 10 years and kind of knew about fire, but it's really become kind of a headline issue the last couple of years? We're building in areas that are just more vulnerable. A great example, Napa Valley had a fire in 81 that actually burned maybe 50, 60 houses. The same perimeter, 2017, burned 600. You know, so you're seeing so many more people living in places that are beautiful, but they're fire places. So we're seeing them really have vulnerabilities and fires hitting them. And we'll come back to that wildland urban interface in a minute. Rich Gordon, some people think that the timber industry is using these fires, exploiting this opportunity to relax restrictions to get more logging. Is that happening? No. It isn't happening. <laughs> Our lands are fairly well managed. That has to be done because of the, uh, the way timber harvest is done in California. Uh, but uh, what we're concerned about as an industry uh, is our neighbors. Today, when fire starts next door, it can encroach onto to our lands. So we've actually taken a, a position that really wants to look at forest health in a very broad way, concerned about all of the forests in California, not just the ones that uh, the timber companies manage. And Lizzie Johnson, you've been on the front lines talking to people. What are their experiences? People saying like, wow, this is different. We've seen fires, but this is different. What are they telling you? They're horrified. The fires are coming into more developed areas like Santa Rosa. These are people that never thought that their home would burn down. And now they're getting evacuated in the middle of the night with no warning. Mm -hmm. They're terrified. They're traumatized. They think it's going to happen again. Those people want to rebuild. In fact, Catlin, who we spoke to, is rebuilding in exactly the same place. Lizzie Johnson, are there any laws saying, well, maybe we shouldn't rebuild there because these fires tend to come back every few decades, right? Yeah, so that's where we're at right now. We're trying to figure out what comes next. There is no precedent saying that you can take a landowner's right to rebuild away. Mm -hmm. So they can rebuild if they want to. And oftentimes, because they have those emotional attachments to their homes, they want to rebuild it just as it was, mm -hmm. thinking that lightning won't strike in the same place twice but areas that experience fire will often experience it again. And Scott Stevens, people in Northern California and the West love to have trees next to their homes and you know, mm. live in near nature and it's very idyllic and pastoral and, and yet it's, it's dangerous. I think you're right. But if you live in these areas, you can still have trees near your home and, and beautiful vegetation, but you can also manage it to lower its density, less trees per acre, less fuel on the ground, you know, make your house a little bit more resistant to fire. So there's things you can do to really make a difference. So there is great hope that we could actually make things better here in the state too. So what are some specific examples of that? I mean, put mesh on your rain gutters, a nice little fence that goes to your house mm -hmm. is a pathway for fire. So I mean, pretty much you clear, clear cut around your house, right? <laughs> is, is that what needs to happen? You're right. You know, you can do things like not having a wood roof, not having wood siding for your house. Another thing you can do is get to know your communities. You know, that's one thing that's a challenge because sometimes, you know, fire's on top of you, but maybe you've got a 78-year-old person next door that's not mobile. And then you have a plan that if fire comes, you're going to make sure you get them out. And maybe you've got a neighbor over there with a small child. So you make a plan with your community that you can execute the plan when the fire happens versus trying to run around and do it at the time. I want to talk about the people who are fighting these fires, you know, people who are actually some of the heroes on, on the front lines. Josh Bregman is a wildland fighter for the city of San Fe Fire Department. He's been working for the last two years and has already been all over the western United States. We asked him to tell us about some of his experiences and what he thinks the future holds for him and his profession. 
This season, we've been to Taos. Uh, we're on our way to Oregon at the moment, and um, we're hoping to do some firefighting in California as well this year. Last year, we had some pretty dramatic days on one of our deployments. We worked a fire called the Emory Gap Fire in northeastern New Mexico, and um, it was threatening a watershed area for, I think it was Bronson, Colorado, on the other side of the border. And we kept the fire pretty much out of the watershed, so we preserved the water supply for the town. There's definitely a sense that we're going to be busy into the foreseeable future, you know. I don't think anyone expects that there will be any kind of drop-off or downturn. This will get worse as climate change progresses, as temperatures continue to rise, weather patterns become more erratic, wildland firefighters will become, you know, sort of a staple kind of occupation in, in the public consciousness because it's just going to be constant footage of these tremendous fires. And even if you live in an urban area, you're still dealing with the smoke fallout, you know, the possible contamination of water supplies. You know, when the forests aren't healthy, it affects you, even if you don't live in or near a forest. That was Josh Bregman, a wildland firefighter for the city of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Lizzie Johnson, you've interviewed some of these uh, these firefighters. Tell us about, you know, first of all, the fatigue they must be going through because it's just nonstop. Morale is definitely lower this year because there have been so many firefighter fatalities. I was up in Ukiah at the fire camp the morning after one of their firefighters died on the Mendocino complex, and it was the first fatality for that fire. And there was just this sense of shock and disbelief, like, we're out here trying to save houses and stop this fire and people are dying and now we have to go do it again. It seems very real to them all of a sudden how many risks come along with that job. Risks and, and really high cost. Do you have a sense of how much is being spent on firefighting in California? I mean, it's bigger, bigger part of the state budget. Scott Stevens? The last number I saw, I'm probably a little out of date, about $430 million has been spent by the state this year on firefighting. It doesn't include probably the federal firefighting as well. And I think we've almost actually used up the entire allocation for firefighting as of probably right now. So everything else is going to be in excess of what's been budgeted. So close to half a billion. And how does that compare to, say, 10 years ago? You know, as back around the mid-90s, the mid-90s, when we look at the budget of firefighting through the whole nation, it was around $200 million, $150 million. That was in the whole nation. And today, very typical for us to spend $2.5 billion. So it's gone from something on the order of $200 million, $250 million in that range to 2.5 billion from the mid-90s. Greg Dalton is talking about wildfires in the West with Rich Gordon, president of the California Forestry Association, Lizzie Johnson on staff at the San Francisco Chronicle, and Scott Stevens, professor of fire science at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Rich Gordon, there's something called the fire fix, I believe. It was one of the, the rare bipartisan efforts that Congress did. Tell us about that. They actually came together around fire and did something, actually worked together. <laughs> yeah. So at the uh, federal level, the uh, U.S. Forest Service has never had a dedicated source of funding for firefighting. So what they've had to do is take money out of maintenance and restoration in order to pay for the fires and firefighting. What Congress did last spring in um, the omnibus spending bill was fix that. The fire fix means that for the first time now, 
uh, the U.S. Forest Service actually has a dedicated, will have in 2020, a dedicated source of funding to fight fires. The positive nature of that is that uh, they will no longer have to steal money from restoration and maintenance. And that's a positive in terms of improving the health and resiliency of the federal forests. And Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke said that part of this is, is human cause, Rich Gordon, that there should be thinning of the forest would reduce the fuel that then makes these mega fires. You probably agree with that? Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with the approach that the Secretary suggested. But what is important to understand is that we have too much fuel. Our forests are too dense. We have um, allowed them to overgrow because we have aggressively fought fire and done fire suppression. Smokey the Bear is part of the problem. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And maybe Bambi, too. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But a thinner forest is a healthier forest. It is better for the watersheds. It's better for carbon sequestration. So we're not talking about, you know, going in and clear-cutting a forest. That would actually be disastrous. What's important is to go in and thin and leave the stronger, healthier trees that uh, are good for carbon sequestration and good for uh, forest resiliency. Scott Stevens, some environmentalists would hear that and say, you know, the thinning is actually home to ecosystems and species, mm-hmm. and that thinning is kind of, is damaging to forests. Well, I, I hear that too. And, and I, you know, there's no doubt when you put a machine into a forest, that's not a natural event. But I agree that so many of our forests are in conditions that are really unsustainable. You look at the mortality that happens just from drought and insects, and we put fire on top. And also, the other thing that's so important is we call it surface fuel. Surface fuel simply is a dead and down woody material on top of the forest. Dead and down, okay. the wood on the ground, right? And it turns out, in about 70% of cases, that's going to be maybe the highest amount of energy in a wildfire. It's not the crowns. The crowns certainly can make huge flames, and they do. But you really need to have that surface fuel to have a high amount of heat to initiate that crown fire. So one of the challenges is you can reduce tree density, and you also have to reduce that woody fuel on the ground. It's expensive to do that. So what are the economics of you know, clearing that? And who's ensuring, Scott Stevens, that it's done in an environmentally sensitive way versus coming in and just kind of whacking it, right? Well, luckily, California really does have some strong policies of trying to make sure we do things correctly from an environmental standpoint. And you're right, it's going to be costly in some places, but there's also some places you could actually remove some trees and actually offset the cost. And there's some organizations trying to to develop products, an economy around moving those kind of thinner trees that are not, perhaps don't sequester the same amount of carbon, perhaps not the same ecosystem value, but trying some economic value to turn them into wood products. And they're trying trying to work on that. So the economics work. Uh, Lizzie Johnson, tell us about the phases of disaster after these fires come in. They devastate a community. What do the people go through? Yeah, so the human impact of this, you have the disaster, and then you have all of these heroic events where you hear about people running into houses to save the puppy and camping out in a pool overnight and surviving. And then the entire community is really cohesive. They're together. And then they slip into disillusionment, where it seems like everyone else is moving on. They're seeing their friends having holidays in their homes and going through life milestones while they're still displaced in hotels, living with friends and family. You really have not gone that far. And then the rebuilding really starts to happen after that. The first year is the hardest part. And there's housing shortage. So there's 3,000 homes destroyed in one area north of San Francisco. Then the rents go up for everybody else. People want to rebuild, but it's hard to get a contractor and a plumber and an architect. So tell us about that part. You know, afterwards, you know, do people come back? Some do. Some just like walk away. 
Yeah, it's really hard to rebuild a normal life when your job is disrupted. You don't have housing. You're trying to find housing. But in a place like Sonoma County, the vacancy rate is 1.5%. So there's really no place for these people to go. So they're trying to rebuild, but the resources aren't there. They're trying to find a place to stay while they rebuild. They're trying to do their job and pick up the kids from preschool and take them to school. And, you know, that's a lot to manage at one time. Scott, have you done looked into kind of the economic impacts on communities? We hear a lot about Houston and Miami after after hurricanes, and we know the devastation there. And you know, New Orleans never came back after Katrina. A lot of people moved. Do we know about the fire impacts? Area of North of California, Lake County is an area that had a fire, a big one. You know, it really burned up a lot of houses. And if you go up there today, grammar schools population down 50%. Um, communities still rallying to try to get small business back. A lot of people have no fire insurance that lost their home, zero. So it looks like they're never going to rebuild. So I think we have to think maybe a little longer sometimes about maybe the impact of these fires because, you know, the flames get our attention, and it should. But when you think about how a community rebuilds and how it actually is able then to prosper once again, it is a long haul, and we don't do very well there understanding that. Lucy Johnson, how about insurance? The people you've covered, do they have insurance? Can they get it again to rebuild? It's a mixed bag. Some people had great insurance. And after the fact, they're like, awesome, we have just enough to get by and rebuild our house. And other people suddenly realized that they didn't have the right package. And, you know, they're faced with all of these mounting costs. So they can't rebuild. Or their insurance isn't the same as what it was before because they're in a fire prone area. Right, and there's always that replacement value, whether you, you re- rebuild your home to new code or the, the way it was <laughs> 10 or 20 years ago. Scott Stevens, the insurance industry statewide, insurance companies leaving, is the state going to step in like they've done for earthquakes because no commercial company wants to touch it? Well, a lot of people are getting letters in the mail today that are canceling their fire insurance. I have friends that are getting this today, you know, and this is really difficult, right? So you got a house and you have your possessions and you're getting these letters and the state is actually considering being a fire insurer like they are for earthquake because so many organizations and companies are getting out of some of the markets. And you get that letter and all of a sudden you have no insurance and you go, holy Toledo, right? I got to do something because my house is at risk and here we are. And your bank probably doesn't want to continue your mortgage if you don't have fire insurance. That's true. You know, if you have a mortgage, then I think by law you have to have fire insurance. So that's an interesting dilemma. But right now, unless you have a mortgage, I believe in the state, you don't have to have fire insurance. And are these wealthy people with a second or third home mm-hmm. in Lake Tahoe or are these people in rural communities who are less fortunate? This is their primary home. The biggest impact is the rural areas with lower income because of their low insurance rates, not as much employment. So I think it really hits lower area communities with lower resources. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about forest fires in the American West on Climate One with Rich Gordon, industry representative of the California Forestry Association, Lizzie Johnson, who covers wildfires and other stories for the San Francisco Chronicle, and Scott Stevens, professor of fire science at the University of California at Berkeley. Rich Gordon, you talked about less harvesting of timberland in California. I'm curious about the demand side for recycled. So many people think that if you recycle that napkin, it's one less tree, right? So tell us about the demand side for recycled products. Is that robust? It's very robust in California. We have really strong environmental values here in California. It's what makes us unique, I think, in many ways. So recycling is a part of our ethos. It's what we do. And it does have a positive impact on the planet and on climate issues. 
We've heard, though, that China is not accepting a lot of recycled products. A lot of stuff goes to China. A lot of it depends on the commodity market prices for aluminum, tin, paper, etc. So China's saying, no, no, we don't want to be you know, the dumpster for the global economy. How is that affecting the demand side for recycled products? Well, it's not affecting the demand side. I mean, people still are looking to buy material that's been recycled. The challenge is that China was the number one source of, of recycled paper. They took our waste paper here, recycled it, and returned it to us. Right. Um, if they're not doing that, as is happening right now, we've got a backlog of product here in California that uh, needs to be recycled. That is an opportunity for, for California industry, potentially. So any of your member companies moving from recycling napkins rather than cutting down trees? Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Our companies still cut down trees. Uh, that's where the lumber comes from. <laughs> Interestingly enough, California does not have a paper producer in this state. In fact, most interesting is the fact that during the, uh, the timber wars 20 years ago, California adopted, as Dr. Stevens said, some of the strictest timber harvest rules in the world. And all of the multinational publicly traded companies left California. We don't have Louisiana Pacific. We don't have Weyerhaeuser. None of those companies are here. Companies that do timber work in California are all family-owned or owned by family trusts. So these are people who stayed because it was their land and this was their home. And so it's a very different kind of world in California that folks really take a close look at, at what they do. And um, most, most of the companies now have policies of, you know, of being very selective in their harvest to generate the lumber that's needed, but not to, to over-excessively uh, reduce forest lands. Oil companies are getting into biofuels. You know, energy companies are getting into solar or wind, diversify. They kind of see what's coming. Do timber companies uh, have the same kind of diversification, it, or are they still more traditional well, into uh, what they know? There's a, a number of the timber companies are involved in, in bioenergy, taking wood waste and wood products that we're not using for any other purpose and turning them into energy. Most of that, though, is being done in local communities or running a sawmill somewhere in California. That energy is still very expensive, and so it's not necessarily purchased on the grid. That's very rare. There are, I think, seven bioenergy facilities that have contracts for the energy companies to buy that fuel, that energy. Forests are now carbon sinks, so there's actually value for sequestering carbon in forests and land. People can get paid, basically. Is there opportunity there for your members, Rich Gordon? There are certain conservation easements that many of my members seek that uh, provide additional protections for lands that they're not going to harvest or don't want to harvest. And there are some trade-offs that they can do in terms of um, carbon credits for protecting those. Scott Stevens, California's led the country in attacking climate change, and it really started with tailpipes and smokestacks. Mm -hmm. And then it got to, you know, the exhaust from cows and farms. Mm -hmm. And forests were kind of further out there even yet. Tell us how forests are not really part of the state's climate plans. They're kind of on the periphery. Some people would like them to be more front and center. I think a, a lot of people have looked at the forest to at least maintain carbon stocks. But of course, we're seeing now fires actually burning forests, shrublands, grasslands, and all these other activities that we're seeing more and more smoke going up. And I know for sure in the state capital in Sacramento that there's 
really concerned about this because we're wondering maybe this is beginning to really short circuit um, our longer term plans to reduce emissions. Forests are supposed to, right, put carbon back in the ground. We've basically been burning it, sending it up into the air. Then we don't know how that math's working out. We look at some parts of the state, as you know, in northwestern California, you have redwood, you have Douglas fir forests that are wet. So those places are still sequestering carbon, you know, big time because of just their growth. And you can put some of those products, you know, into things like houses. So you can sequester wood into long-term use. So it's going to be a combination, I think, of both having forests that sequester carbon, try to hold it better in the face of climate change and fire, and also continue to do things with wood because wood is a very environmentally friendly material to build homes and other things. Rich Gordon, uh, the California legislature passed a bill that did some things on electric utilities as well as eased restrictions on, uh, on some thinning and, and logging, about a billion dollars using cap-and-trade funds. Tell us about that, what that at law will do. It was a comprehensive piece of legislation. It dealt with um, utility liability issues. It dealt with firefighter protection. It dealt with emergency response and emergency preparedness. And it also dealt with forest practices. And part of what they did with forest practices was make it easier for small landowners to uh, remove uh, excess fuels from their lands. So now neighbors can collaborate together. If you have a a project less than 10,000 acres, working together, you can clear trees around your homes. Uh, It makes it easier to do that. Well, some environmentalists have written and said, well, there's already exemptions for fire that already existed. Why do we need this? This was a... you know, some, a, a, you know, candy bar for logging, something like that. Our, our forest practice rules stay in place. The exemptions don't exempt folks from following our environmental standards. They exempt them from some of the paperwork that's involved. It essentially becomes a checklist uh, rather than a, a full-blown uh, report. But what this does, uh, particularly for the small landowners, is allow people to work collectively together. And then you get to an economy of scale that will allow the kind of thinning around homes uh, in the neighborhoods that we've been talking about tonight that face this kind of wildland-urban interface, clearing in those areas. Lizzie Johnson, smoke has come into areas. Some people in urban California walking around with, with these masks on. What do we know about the human health impacts of breathing smoke for weeks at a time? They're still trying to figure that out, but it's something crazy, the equivalent of like smoking a pack of cigarettes if you breathe in that smoke for a day. And they're still figuring out what the long-term impacts are too. Like up in Sonoma County right now, they're having a study of pregnant women who gave birth after the fires to see what those impacts were. It's not anything good, I can tell you that much. (laughs) Birth weight, that sort of thing. That sort of thing, yeah. Right. Scott Stevens, what kind of research is there on the health impacts of breathing smoky air. I mean, Sacramento, British Columbia, it's all up and down the West Coast in North America, more smoke than we've breathed in our lifetime. No, it's true. When we think about smoke impacts this year, Bay Area's been smoked out. Sacramento for months, northern parts of California for months at a time. So it really impacts probably the highest amount of people, really the indirect impacts of smoke because it just spreads all over the, the state. British Columbia had 550 lightning fires in three days this year in August, and that smoke actually made it to the Bay Area. It made it because it went out into the Pacific and the jet stream took it to us. So there's no doubt smoke impacts are huge. And if we're going to go to using fire maybe to actually manage force, we're going to have more smoke in the air. So you're talking about prescribed fire or or planned fire. You're talking about burning forests in a a controlled way before they get out of control. And and that's like, okay, we're going to burn at a certain time. And just, okay, people, here it comes. No, that's right. And it's something that... um, 
I think we're trying to really do more of in this state. And I think right now with the governor's bill that just got passed, $35 million a year for the next five years is actually going to put at prescribed fire application. What about the tourism impact, Scott Stevens? I talked to someone who lives in Montana, Whitefish, Montana. Her husband works in the tourism industry. People go there for Glacier National Park. They need to make their money in like four months of the year. It gets smoky, and the tourists don't want to go to Glacier to paddle or cycle or hike. So what about the tourist impacts of this? I think it's very large. Some of the rural counties of this state in Northern California, where tourism is really big, you know, fishing, hiking, camping, big fire years can basically take the tourism economy down 50%. So that is really difficult. And how do you think about a place like California going into a warming climate with more variable precipitation, ignitions by lightning and people, Fire just doesn't come out of the equation, right? So somehow we've got to be able to think about how we can maybe work with fire and do the best we can. But the idea that we can continue just to exclude fire, exclude it, exclude it like we have for the last hundred years, we can see now that it's not working. Okay. And it's, it's time for some innovation and some new ideas and some, some places to change. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about managing our forests in the face of wider and wilder fires with Lizzie Johnson, a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Scott Stevens, professor of fire science at the University of California, Berkeley, and Rich Gordon, president of the California Forestry Association. Here's Greg. Scott Stevens, around the world, we've seen places that don't usually burn have been burning. I mean, it really is a world on fire. No, it's true. Scandinavia countries this year, big reports of burning happening in northern boreal forests that haven't burned much at all. British Columbia, Canada, right next door. Last year was one of the biggest fire years, was the biggest fire year in their history. And they're also trying to understand how do they go forward. So things are changing. There's no doubt. And climate change is no doubt a part of that because we're getting more variation on temperature, humidities, you know, fuel moisture. But again, you know, there's still this idea sometimes I, I feel that this perception that the fire is just coming down the tube and all we can do is react to it and, and get, you know, get out of the way or get knocked over. There's still so many things we can do better. How we plan our communities, how we actually live in our communities and help each other, how we can manage forests sometimes to actually reduce their risk. But it's going to take some innovation and actually some ability to move. We got to be able to move and actually do some of these treatments at scale. The back of the envelope calculation tells us, at least on federal lands in the state, that we need to maybe restore 10 times as much as we do on an annual basis to make a difference. So 10 times what we're doing today. Sometimes you say that and people start to wonder how in the world could we ever do that? But the consequences is, is if we don't do this in 10, 20, 30 years, and our kids and our grandkids are basically going to be reacting just like we are, but they're going to have less space to do something about it because it's going to be warmer, it's going to be more variable, and they're not going to have that chance that we did. So restoring, you're talking about replanting? Well, doing things like, you know, thinning forests. So we cut the small trees, try to enhance the large ones, doing prescribed fire. Some places we even manage wildfire. We can do more active timber management and actually do some work, you know, again, for uh, wood creation. So it really is in the forest. We have really good things that we can do today. And science shows that it works. When we get into the chaparral or the shrublands or the oak woodlands in those areas, it is more difficult because those systems burn differently. They don't have, you know, understory fire that burns through them typically three, 400 years ago. 
they basically burn much higher intensity and they do it episodically. So those places are harder. When we think about the forest in this state, we have some really good things we could do, but the other vegetation types were a little bit more of a struggle. The pine bark beetle has devastated forests in the West and that's because as winters are warmer, the larvae doesn't get killed in winter like they used to. So all the way up and down, I've driven across Wyoming, it's all the way up to British Columbia, Scott Stevens. Mm -hmm. Tell us how the pine bark beetle has created just we don't, do we know how many dead trees that are then fuel for fire? No, it's very true. If you look in the southern Sierra Nevada, you know, we had the drought for about four or five years, and that caused the bark beetle then to basically enhance itself and kill trees. We saw 150 million trees die in those four or five years. I look at that as a symptom of unsustainable forest condition. But if you just go down a little bit further south, there's one place I've been working for a number of years called the Sierra San Pedro Martir. It's in northern Baja, Mexico. It's a place that actually had no real harvesting at all, and fire suppression didn't begin until 1970. We've been working down there for about 25 years now. They had the same drought in the late 90s and 2000s in Southern California, but when we go down there and look at mortality, about one and a half trees per acre died. One and a half trees per acre died. You go down there and you see the most resilient forest condition I've ever seen in my life. And the forests are very similar to forests in California, Jeffrey pine, white fir, sugar pine. So that forest is in a state that when drought hits it and bark beetles start to kill trees, it basically pushes back. Forest is basically enabled and actually continues. In Southern California, we had bark beetles in a condition that actually the forest could not really push back very effectively, and we have 150 million dead trees, and now we're going to have to live with that probably in the next few decades. But again, it just shows us in a forest condition that actually has a capacity to deal with those stresses, it's actually something that works along. But we need to get there. What could be learned from yeah. indigenous communities that you know, we've pushed aside, Scott Stevens, to manage for us? As you know, you know, people live in this state for thousands of years, maybe 10,000, 6,000 years. There have been people in this state. There's no doubt then I think we can learn from them. And there is actually a kind of a groundswell of local communities and native communities trying to actually work together to maybe think about forest management. I think it's an area of innovation that really could take off. There's been reluctance in the federal side, frankly, to do this at any kind of scale. I think it's always been this challenge about we're a federal entity, we're the U.S. Forest Service, we're the National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management. By statute, we control this land, and we're not really too sure how to work with these indigenous communities. But there really is some innovation in this state, some things in the north parts of the state. And you're right, you know, we got so much land in this state. When I look at it, can we get a little creative and maybe have, you know, a few tens of thousands of acres for indigenous communities or more? Seems like very logical. We're going to go to our audience questions, invite you to join us uh, with your comments or questions. Welcome to Climate One. I'm curious what you've noticed in terms of any resistance to change in government, local or state, that is uncomfortable with, with fighting fire and coming up with new solutions. You see that a lot in the rebuilding phase where communities quickly want to prop up these resilient rebuilding centers so people can get their permits as quickly as possible and get people back into their homes, which is great. That relieves pain and suffering for them, but that also takes away that sweet spot where you can actually have policy change in the way you rebuild. So you see the homes going up in the same places again, and there really aren't that many changes in terms of how they are rebuilt. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. I'm asking a question almost on the same line. Are there state code changes in how things can be rebuilt? There's a lot of prefabricated housing that's glass and steel. There's air conditioning systems that actually take the 2.5 grains out of the air and clean the air quality for human consumption, even in a city like this. I mean, is the state doing any requirements for 
building codes and air handling codes for handling this problem? Good question. PM 2.5, the kind of tiny things that go past the human lungs defenses. Who'd like to address that? Rich Gordon? Let me say that um, this year in the legislature, there was discussion about this, but no action. I expect that it will be part of the continuing dialogue about fires in California. And it does make absolute sense to take a look at the building codes and make some adjustments to them. I had not heard of uh, AC systems, the, the filter, the PM 2.5. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi there, my name's Cole. Uh, my question's going to be directed towards Rich, and uh, I was wondering if any of these lumber companies, uh, conglomerates, are focusing on pine beetle as a resource to harvest lumber, and how valuable is that lumber after it's already been dead for a couple months, maybe even years before you can collect it? The bark beetle trees do produce a, a very nice blue stain wood, but you've got to get that fairly quickly for it to have any uh, use. Uh, so part of the challenge we've had is that uh, the vast majority of the 150 million dead trees are in federal forest land. And getting those trees, the dead trees, out of the federal forest has been a challenge. Uh, but there is a potential use for that if you get to, to those uh, trees soon enough. Our guests are Rich Gordon, president of the California Forestry Association. Lindsay Johnson is a staff writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Scott Stevens is professor of fire science at the University of California at Berkeley. Let's go to our next question. Hello. So in this panel, we've touched upon the ideas of a controlled burn, so the idea of creating a fire to prevent more. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it looks like and what the purpose of it is? Scott Stevens, get your thoughts on controlled burns. Sure. You know, prescribed fires is another tool where we can actually make a plan, prescribed fire plan, and a smoke management plan is required. You get that plan reviewed, approved, and then you actually have a set of conditions you can do your burning. We've done around 75 of these over so in, in, in California. So you then are actually putting fire on the ground for a resource objective, maybe fuel load, maybe it's going to be wildlife habitat, maybe reduce a non-native plant. So it actually is then putting fire on the ground by humans for an objective and doing it deliberately. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really strongly supportive of it because it really can be a big piece of this. So... Of course, there's always risk. There's no zero risk. I've had some of my fires escape control lines, had to take suppression action. And this is something that you plan for. So you have a contingency. So if you have a problem, then you make a plan to try to make it. So it's fire on the ground for an application for objective. Rich Gordon, I'm looking at you, thinking you've been an elected politician in the state assembly. What kind of public squabbling? I just can hear constituents saying, why are you burning? Why are you doing that? You're ruining my Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the, the issue of a controlled burn for forest management is something that is not well understood in California. First of all, we've not used it frequently in recent times, yeah. although it was a tool often used by the first peoples who were here. Yeah. They actually would set fire, knowing that would actually improve forest health by removing the underbrush and leaving uh, the, the taller trees. So we have to explain to people why this is a, a tool uh, that can be helpful in thinning and removing the undergrowth. We also need to point out that we still follow all of the uh, air pollution guidelines in California when we do this work. These plans are not approved unless the local air board approves them and approves the timing of it. Let's go to our next question. Uh, Catherine Randolph, I live in uh, Mill Valley, and I've been teaching a class Fire and Marin for the last 10 years. I teach with the fire departments for the residents. And, you know, there's been a big thing about the wildland urban interface building codes that have been adopted by the state in most localities. But I think what we're seeing in these fires is that because of ember showers spreading embers far and wide, that 
even if you're not in the wooey zone, you're really subject to that kind of ignition. Wooey zone is W-U-I, Wildland Urban Interface. We'd like to tackle right. yeah, so, the you know, So is there any plan to expand those codes to areas that are not actually in the wooey? Building codes. Everybody's in fire range. Rich Gordon? There has not been a discussion about that in Sacramento, in the state capitol, but there needs to be. Because uh, in many ways, all of California is at risk. So we've got to take a look at our building codes to make sure that just as we've done statewide for earthquake, we need to have some statewide protocols for fire. And Scott Stevens, does the same apply to Colorado, Oregon, Washington? It absolutely does. Every Western state's got this issue. I think every Western state legislature and governors are thinking about this because all of them have risk and the risk is increasing. And this is something that is totally Western wide. And even places like Florida, they also have a huge amount of risk in this. Eastern Texas, Western Texas. So, no, it's an area that actually is getting more and more consideration because so many people are at risk. And there's something captivating about fire. It's, it's immediate, it's visceral, it, it plays well on the evening news. Mm-hmm. Sea level rise is kind of slow and boring. And, <laughs> right, is there something sort of visceral about fire? I mean, we're all pyros down, deep down, aren't we? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we actually go camping. What do we do? We create a campfire, we sit around it, and we share stories. So probably exactly what Native people did for centuries and millennia. I think we're all fire creatures. It used to be the open flame was in front of us and we worked with it. What do we do today? We jump in our cars and the flame's inside an engine. We're just as much fire people as they were in Native times, but the fire is inside and we can't see it. We're all pyro people. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. My name is John Wade. I'm from Pescadero, California, um, and I live at the edge of the fo- between farm and forest. My question is, is a larger question, though, which is how are we going to manage the forest in the future to minimize the global warming and the climate change from all the soot and all the carbon that's going up from the fires? Rich Gordon? We're going to have to look very closely at thinning our forests in a way that protects wildlife habitat, that creates good soil conditions for water runoff into our streams. So I think there's some things that we will have to do in forest management that uh, can actually be done in a way that actually improves the uh, carbon sequestration and helps us meet our climate change goals. We haven't talked about watersheds before we go to the next question. Scott Stevens, what happens to watersheds after a fire? Because people don't you know, realize that your water comes from a hill or you know, forest somewhere. Well, sometimes when watersheds are burned severely, it can be really impactful to watersheds. You know, there was a few years ago, we had a fire called the Rim Fire. It was in central Sierra Nevada. It turned out to be 250,000 acres. You know, the first entity that called about the Rim Fire as concern was San Francisco Water and Power. Because the Rim Fire is Hetchetchy. Hetchetchy Reservoir is a huge reservoir that basically serves San Francisco and a lot of the Bay Area. So it was the water managers that were the most concerned about the rim fire because maybe hitting Hetchetchy. So it's soot running into the, is ashes running into the water? Erosion, ash, you know, going into the reservoirs, clogging them, changing the water quality standards. But the other part of this is actually sometimes if you have fire working more ecologically, appropriately, We've done some work in the Sierra Nevada, and we see that actually when fire is allowed to burn in Yosemite National Park for 45 years, we actually see that we're seeing slightly increases in water coming out of these watersheds. And actually, that is something that we don't see in places that don't have any type of fire at all. So I think there's a synergy between climate change, forest health, and water that we might be able to explore in this state to actually make a difference. Because if I think about natural resources in the state, I put water as probably the top of the pile. Yeah, we don't have the California dream without the water we're moving around. Let's go to our next question. 
Lizzie, in your reporting and traveling, have you learned of any other countries that are experiencing this in particular? And um, how can they use California as an example? I was actually in Sweden earlier this summer when they had all of their wildfires going on, and it was really interesting to see their response to it. They're really only used to getting a few wildfires every summer, and this summer, practically the entire northern region, it seemed, was on fire, and they were getting resources from Italy and from Spain and from Portugal, and so a lot of countries end up looking to California in our model here with CAL FIRE to see if they need larger statewide mechanisms or countrywide mechanisms to battle these blazes. Because what we do have here in the state is very unique. It's not quite like anywhere else. How so? In that we have CAL FIRE. Mm -hmm. It's a statewide statewide firefighting agency. agency. Last question. Welcome. Yes, my name is Betsy Ferguson, and my husband and I were involved in the Oakland firestorm and lost Mm -hmm. our house, along with lots of other folks. And that was 25 years ago. So my question is, what mitigating things do you think have been done for the future? And just as an aside, one of my neighbors who lives down the street has been notified that her fire insurance is being canceled. Jerry Brown also lives up there, but he says at his age, he can take the rest. So, um, Scott Stevens. Yeah, the 91 fire, what a day. That was my first semester at UC Berkeley. And it really was transformative when you think about what it did to people, lives, you know, houses lost. We've learned from it, but we've also haven't done enough. You know, I think, you know, California's got 58 counties. Every county has land management plans. So when the state starts to get down on those counties, you start talking about the state putting more requirements, more land zoning requirements, more building requirements to build here. There's real tension between the counties and the state trying to get into their turf. But unless we do something like that, we're basically going to be chasing our tail forever. Australia has done a lot better than this. Australia is a place where this is done a little bit more systematically. People have learned, and they're actually reducing risk in their wildland urban interface, and I have to commend them for that. And I do think the state has to step up and actually get a little bit more involved in this and probably get some people a little upset. But we just can't continue to keep building like we are in places and continue to burn up. Greg Dalton has been talking about wildfires in the West with Rich Gordon, president of the California Forestry Association, which represents the timber industry. He is a former state assemblyman for San Mateo. Lizzie Johnson is a staff writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, where covering wildfires is now a full-time and year-round beat. And Scott Stevens, a professor of fire science at the University of California, Berkeley. He's written about managing fire and forest in a changing climate. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. 
Planet One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.